good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you all to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight, we are going to be having a guest speaker. This is Professor Barry Latucci from Brooklyn College. They will be giving a lecture in our format on fascism in Europe. I'm going to give the comrade the floor. Thank you very much. Brothers and sisters, we are on the cusp of a very dangerous global situation, which has been created by the United States and its NATO alliance. For eight years since the imposition of this coup government in the Ukraine, the Russian government tried to negotiate with the United States and the Ukraine. And really what they were looking for was not actually the occupation of any Ukrainian territory, not even the uh, Donbass region, the two Donetsk and Lugansk, the two areas that wanted independence. They were willing actually to keep those, according to the Minsk agreement within Ukraine, the one issue really was always neutrality and peace. The reason for the war is that the United States did not want peace. The NATO alliance did not want peace. And frankly, the overwhelming influence of neo-Nazi groups in the Ukraine overwhelmed the political system so much that the leadership, first Poroshenko and then Zelensky, could not even negotiate for peace, even though they got elected on that basis of asking for peace. So really what we have is a situation, an international conflict in which most of the fighting forces of the Ukraine are pro-Nazi and are becoming a rallying point for the rise of neo-Nazi movements everywhere, is instigated, accelerated, encouraged by the United States and its NATO alliance, and it's unnecessary. And even Zelensky said today that he understands that Ukraine probably should not be in NATO which is a pretty shocking admission after all this time demanding to be in NATO and causing this war. I would very much like to see peace, but the only way forward is really at this point to smash the Nazis and end their military assault, because most of the Ukraine people do not want this war, just as most Russians probably don't want this war. Nobody wants this war except the Nazis and their imperialist backers in Washington and the NATO capitals. It's a tragedy, but it has a long history. Unfortunately, there has been a very strong Ukrainian fascist movement for the whole of the 20th century and into the 21st century. And that fascist movement, it has its origins in the birth of Ukrainian nationalism in the 19th century, which was encouraged by German imperialism. And the Ukrainians were really Russian peasants who eventually acquired their own identity because they were oppressed by Polish and Russian landlords. And the Jews were viewed as their enemies because they were merchants. So the Ukrainian nationalist movement by World War I had become largely influenced by German imperialism. And so the Ukrainian nationalists became proxies for German imperialism. And in World War I, the Germans occupied the Ukraine. And when they were losing World War I, they had to retreat, but they handed it over to a far-right regime led by Semyon Petlura. Then Petlura 
eventually lost to the Bolsheviks and was forced to flee, but he was assassinated by a Ukrainian Jewish person whose family was killed by Petlura. And by 1927, you had the organization of Ukrainian nationalists to replace that earlier movement, which was going to be completely financed and organized and trained by the Nazis. They committed terrible atrocities in World War I under Petlura. My family was even a victim of that. But also in World War II, they committed horrible, genocidal, and we're not talking about a few thousand Ukrainian Nazis. We're talking perhaps as many as 100,000. We're talking about huge battalions that fought with the Germans who were trained by the Nazis, especially between 39 and 41, and by the Gestapo to carry out the Holocaust, in fact. But they also killed masses of Polish people. That's another story about Ukrainian-Polish relations, which is very complicated. But basically, Poles were exterminated by the tens of thousands by Ukrainian fascists. And so the key issue here is how, after World War II, the United States, basically in charge of the world, economically and politically and militarily, supported the old Ukrainian Nazis, brought them under the CIA, trained them, paid them, actually invaded the Soviet Union in the late 1940s. Not very well known, but again, the U.S., stepped into the shoes of German imperialism and became the new masters of all the German imperialist proxies. And the Ukrainian fascists were one of those. And there's a thread all the way from 1946, which CIA reports openly admit, between the CIA and Ukrainian Nazis. And the neo-Nazi movement that exists today is directly an offshoot of what the United States supported and these Nazis from World War II were still alive in the 1990s, okay? So there is a direct connection between the current Ukrainian state and the old Nazi movement supported by the U.S. Again, the U.S. is prepared to fight to the last dead Ukrainian in this proxy war to destroy Russia and ultimately China as well. I was wondering if the comrade professor had any insight on how this crisis will bolster Zuganov's position in Russia. My understanding is that the Communist Party wanted to do something militarily much sooner. I think it's going to help the communists in Russia quite a bit, to tell you the truth, because they've more or less analyzed the situation sooner and better, probably. Clearly, the, the communists were calling for this a long time ago and understood the situation very well. Hello, comrade professor. What you said about Petliura and Bandera, it's interesting to know that Petliura was assassinated in 1926 in Paris by a Jew whose right. family was killed in Odessa. And when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, shortly after, Bandera and his organization, the OUN, declared the days of Petliura in Wolf, you know, where the headquarters is, to mark his assassination. And to do that, they made a pamphlet to the Jews that said, we will throw your heads at Hitler's feet. Yes, that was Stetsko who said that. 
He was the prime minister. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, of course, in the most brutal way in Lvov, which had previously been known as Lemberg and today Lviv. What they did to the Jews, for example, they took all the Jewish men, women and children, took them out into the streets and forced them to disrobe. And naked, they were then butchered, thousands. And it was one of the most horrible and heartless and cruel things. Then again, the Ukrainian Nazis, we should be clear that there were Ukrainian communists too. And the civil war in the Ukraine was really probably the bloodiest chapter of the whole civil war from 1918 to 1921. But the Ukrainian Nazis, they had 1939 to 1941 to train them and prepare them. And of course, they were trained. And then they served as guards in the death camps, Auschwitz and Treblinka and Majdanek and so on. And they were also involved in the invasion in June 41. There were Ukrainian battalions that were incorporated. What sort of blowback do you think there'll be from arming these far-right groups? You can look at Afghanistan as a good example of something that has blown back in the face of even the imperialists themselves. And then also, the U.S. thought they could push Russia away from China here, but I don't see that happening, obviously. Do you think that will ultimately lead to a multipolar world and be a net positive in that area, too? I'm not good at predicting the future, I have to admit. (laughs) Blowback, which is the title of a very good book, by the way, by Christopher Mm -hmm. Simpson. Did you read that book? Mm Mm-hmm. I became friends with Christopher Simpson, and he really did an enormous amount of research and exposure of the Ukrainian Nazis and their connection to U.S. imperialism. But I think the real danger is the rise of fascist forces. These are paramilitary organizations. These are not just political parties we're talking about that advocate racism. These are in the very image of the Nazis. So it is true to call them neo-Nazi parties, and they are inspired by the Ukrainian neo-Nazi groups. And Ukraine now is this rallying point. Even if the Ukrainian army was defeated and Zelensky surrendered tomorrow, unfortunately, the blowback of this war is going to have long-standing consequences for countries all over the world where these neo-Nazis come back and perhaps try to start something in their own home countries. This is very dangerous. We have to alert people to it and prepare ourselves for it. I've been going through some informational broadcasts from the 80s and 90s from a guy named Dave Emery, a lot of imperialist and fascist history. And he talks about how There might have been a conspiracy for Bandera, who's this big Nazi nationalist figure in Ukraine, to have actually been assassinated by the CIA under Reinhard Gallen, rather than the KGB. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is what is believed to have actually happened, yes. That's more than a conspiracy theory. I was just curious if there was more to it than that. Gallen was Nazi intelligence. He hides out in a chalet. He buries all his stuff. He keeps all his documents, and he integrates the old Tsarist spy network. Then he integrates his Nazi spy network into the CIA. And so the CIA is a combination of basically fascists from all these countries. But I want to ask if that ties into Bandera. And the second thing I wanted to ask was 
you talked about them invading the Soviet Union in 48 or in the late 40s. And yeah, I was curious right, if that's right. referring to stay behind operations with these fascists or yes, what is that referring to? Yes, yes. The CIA was only created in 48, but there was the OSS and then there were the other intelligence services. They were renamed and reformulated to finally create the CIA. But U.S. and British intelligence, they came into contact with tens of thousands of Ukrainian fascists immediately after the war who entered the displaced persons camps in Germany and Austria and elsewhere, starting in 45. So in other words, the Ukrainian fascists fled westward and entered into these displaced person camps. And the British and American intelligence services immediately saw these as potential recruits and brought masses of them over to the United States and Canada, especially Canada and Australia. And then they were seen not just as assets for intelligence, and obviously not everybody could be recruited, but they brought, we're talking over 100,000 people brought over who were also seen as potential recruits for a proxy army. Now, the covert operations into the Ukraine were small, and they were unsuccessful, and quite probably unsuccessful because of Kim Philby, who was working in British intelligence, but who was actually working for the Soviet Union. And this was both the OUN, the Bandera people, and the Father Hirinok and group, there was another group of Ukrainian fascists that the U.S. was working with. I think it was 47. But in any case, they were captured and killed. And that was probably due to Kim Philby's providing information to the Soviet Union. Something very important to understand is the U.S. dominates the world economy and has done so since 1944 when it established the Bretton Woods system at the Bretton Woods Conference. The U.S. and NATO alliance and the intelligence services are the military architecture that houses this globalization movement. Globalization, certainly we can say that it was a lot better than the old imperialism, which depended on conflicts between the empires and world wars and colonization. Immediately with the creation of the globalized system, you don't need that. You just have one superpower with the NATO alliance and the intelligence services protecting the capitalist world and sanctioning, as we did all through from 1945 onward, the socialist communist countries and anybody else who doesn't play along under the Washington consensus and the rules of globalization about U.S. imperialism and its lies. During World War II, when everything was up in the air, and the old imperialism was not yet discarded. The US, Britain, and Soviet Union came together in a series of meetings, which led to the Moscow Agreements of 1943, the final meeting being in Moscow in November 1943, which led to something called the Moscow Declaration. At that time, the British and the Americans got the Soviet Union to agree to the future creation of the United Nations, which would be one of the political superstructures for the future system. But the Soviets got the US and Britain to agree to the arrest and extradition of all Nazi war criminals to the countries where they committed their crimes. The US and Britain immediately violated this in 1945 by essentially employing Nazis and bringing them in. 
This is the first real violation of international law by the United States and Britain in their support for Nazis. To violate this agreement, the Moscow Declaration, this is a big thing. This is a really big thing. But then again, we should also recognize then later in the 1980s, the United States and the NATO alliance agreed not to expand NATO into Eastern Europe. And that was part of the dirty deal that Gorbachev made in the summits with Ronald Reagan. So again, we see this dishonest double dealing by the imperialists, first with violating all the agreements that were made in Moscow in 43, and then at the other end of the Cold War, the double dealing in those summits between Gorbachev and Reagan, where the Americans promised that they would not expand NATO eastward, and where even the father of containment policy, George Kennan, said at the time, we must stick to this or else we're going to provoke another global conflict. It could very well be that this war is driven by necessity by the capitalist countries. I was at first hesitant to see this as a crisis of capitalism, but I'm beginning to think that it is. Because when you look at the last 20 years or 25 years of globalization, if you read Joseph Stieglitz, for example, who's one of the fathers of globalization, he admits that 100% of all the profits and growth have been captured by the multinational corporations and the financial institutions. So that's like the one-tenth of 1% who have benefited from global capitalism the last 25 years. And if that's the case, then we really do have a crisis of capitalism right now. And that could be the driving force that is forcing this crisis after all. I didn't think so at first, but I'm beginning to think so now. Do you feel like the Russiagate hysteria that we've been seeing Mm -hmm. since 2016 has caused this hysteria and extreme Russophobia that we're seeing? Because I feel like for a lot of liberals, they viewed that Putin is the real final enemy, as some people have said, <laughs> yeah. behind Trump. I like to see how Trump is really the logical end of U.S. liberal democracy. And so it seems to me that, okay, even if you genuinely think that Putin is the real puppet behind Trump, I don't see the logic, really. And I guess a quick second question is, I also don't understand all these companies pulling out of Russia. It seems to go against capitalist logics, such as it is, because it seems to me like leaving Russia alone to do whatever, I don't know, play chess and go to the ballet. It seems to be exactly what they were trying not to do during the Cold War. So it doesn't really seem to make sense why all these companies would leave a lucrative market. The first thing about the demonization of Putin is also leading to the demonization of the Russian people. And it is really a form of racism. People may not recognize it as such. It's a terrible thing. It's a very funny thing that people who are actually of the same ethnic background, Ukrainians and Russians, can now see themselves as being racially different from one another. And the Ukrainians are saying, we hate Russians, we will kill all Russians. Well, Ukrainian nationalism has been saying that for a long time the right wing, the far right. And unfortunately, the demonization of Putin and the Russian people is part and parcel of imperialist policy to break up Russia. And they have to demonize it. Of course, the second question that you raise is related because think about all the countries that are under sanctions, right? 
not just Russia, but think of Cuba. What country did Cuba invade exactly? I'm trying to figure that one out. And Syria and Iran and North Korea. These countries are all under sanctions, all being destroyed. Sanctions are an act of war and they are a brutal weapon of the imperial system, which again is the globalization system that's been in existence since the end of the Second World War. And so it is true, though, you raise an important point about the intensity of this propaganda. When the imperialists go to war, the whole corporate media follows in line and it's a monolith and it's very dangerous for the world. With the animosity that the United States has against Russia, I'm wondering if the situation in Ukraine is unique or if there are other former Soviet Union countries that the U.S. is funding far-right movements in an attempt to create a similar situation or not? Well, it's like you read my mind. Yes. First of all, the great previous example of this was what they did in Yugoslavia. They demonized the Serbs, even though Serbs, Croats, and Bosnian Muslims really are one people. They speak one language, Serbo-Croatian. They are descended from the same ethnic group. But Croatian fascism was, again, fostered by German imperialism and encouraged by the Nazis and supported by the Nazis to create this idea that the Croats, who are ethnically essentially the same as the Serbs, are somehow some different racial group than the Serbs. So this is this racial theory brought in. And don't doubt for a second that the Ukrainian extremists also have racial theory in mind. They're not just racist against Russians. They are full-blown eugenicists and racists. And they see themselves, again, as some kind of special racial group. Racism is a bogus theory that was created for imperialism and for the destruction of other peoples. So there's plenty of other examples of this, but the Croatian and the Bosnian Muslims used to consider themselves Serbs, and then suddenly they became a separate people. This is nonsense. They were simply Serbs who converted to Islam under the Ottoman Empire. And this people are all one people. This is such a timely class. I'm so glad we're having this. I was just now reading about ex-Nazis from the Luftwaffe, what they were doing after the war, said it all correctly. What they all did is they ran, and the collaborators as well. If you were to look at a map of Europe in World War II, it was not all just one Nazi Germany. It was much like NATO. There was all these mm-hmm. countries, and they were collaborator countries. It was just like right. NATO. And this is such a timely subject. What's happening now is that the truth, the real truth, is coming out, and it can't be blocked. There is a former CIA agent, Philip Ag. He's dead now, unfortunately. Yeah, he was an expert on this subject, on Reinhard Galen, Mm -hmm. on what was going on. And he has some videos and what was the purpose of Americans accepting the Nazis. The fact was, in the early 50s and stuff, there was no internet like this. There was no satellites. The only information, the eyes on the ground they had were these collaborators. These people, they grew up there, like in Ukraine. They Mm -hmm. were Ukrainians and collaborated with Nazi Germany. And they lost and they ran. It was them who were behind these uprisings. There were some uprisings that never had success, and so they're not publicized. Mm-hmm. Like there was one in East Germany in the late 40s. And then we always criticize Khrushchev for his 56 speech. But as Angela says, in 1956, he also put down the fascist uprising 
in Hungary. There were multiple uses for the Nazis after World War II, especially the idea that they would serve as a kind of uprising army in hiding, preparing to fight the communists or to fight for Western imperialism. And so some of them were placed inside Europe and some of them came here, but the hope was that they would provide the future proxy army to fight communism. And indeed they did. They did provide that army. And there were many such attempts to overthrow communist governments. Yugoslavia was bombed in 1947. Albania was invaded by CIA covert operations. Poland also. So there's lots of examples of this. And the neo-Nazi movement was kept alive by billions of dollars in the post-World War II period. And all of this was not known to the public, by the way, until the 1980s. The whole rat line story only broke like in 84, 85, something like that. It's amazing that it was kept secret for so long. But look, a former Nazi war criminal became General Secretary of the United Nations, Kurt Waldheim. And nobody knew it. It's like nobody is being told about the neo-Nazi groups that are coming into Ukraine by the thousands right now. Nobody knows it because it was kept a secret. And a lot of it is still kept secret, but these are facts that we can't understand the world without understanding these facts. I'm a quarter Polish. My grandma is a Polish immigrant. My family, they lived in the Polish People's Republic. I'm just curious. You said it was another story for another time, but I know about the role of the Germans and the Polish and the Holocaust, but I want to know more about the Ukrainian role in right. killing Poles. Well, the Ukrainian nationalists historically saw the Poles as their enemy. Poland had occupied much of what is today northwestern Ukraine, Galicia, for example, in the 1500s, 1600s, it was under the Polish monarchy, and Polish landlords really ran the feudal system. And the Slavic or the Russian Ukrainian people were the serfs. And of course, the Austrian Empire took over this territory in 1772 when Poland was partitioned, the first partition of Poland when the Polish monarchy was collapsing. And so the Austrian empire came in to Galicia, Bukovina, some of the other parts of the Carpathian. And remember, Ukraina means borderland. It meant the Western borderland of the Russian state. And so the Germans really cultivated this hatred for the Polish and Russian landlords in that region as a way of cultivating the Ukrainian national identity and Ukrainian alliance with Germany, because the policy of German imperialism was always to expand eastward for Lebensraum. What happened during World War II is the operations that were carried out against the Polish population in Western Ukraine, it actually was pretty fast and it was carried out by the Ukrainian Nazis. And they massacred, they murdered the Polish population in Galicia in really very short period of time. And I've seen the number as being as high as 50,000 Poles murdered. 
It's shocking. But remember, they did the same thing to the Jews and the Russians and the Soviet officers. This was a real extermination campaign. And it was all fueled by racism and imperialism. I know that the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics turned out to be successful. What made the attempts in Kharkiv and Odessa less successful? I do think that Odessa, where there were terrible crimes committed by the fascists against the trade union movement, and these places are heavily infiltrated by neo-Nazi groups, I think. That's my understanding anyway. And that the Azov battalion supposedly is very strong in Kharkiv and fighting very hard there. And I think the same goes for Odessa. These being the second and third largest cities in Ukraine are being heavily defended by fascists, by the neo-Nazis. This is where they're making their stand, so to speak, I think. I do believe Russia will win this war in any event. It's going to be a bloody and hard-fought victory because of the Nazis. This is a time where the anti-imperialist Marxist left can really make a very big contribution, especially because of the one-sided monolithic nature of the media. It's up to us really to speak out. I know it's hard. It's very, very hard. I went to a demonstration in Times Square. We were surrounded by Ukrainian nationalists screaming at us, cursing at us, and we were very small in number, and the police were not willing to protect our right to demonstrate for sure. So it's a very dangerous situation. I can tell you from my experience in the 1990s, I was brutally attacked by Croatian fascists who tried to kill me. And I was actually, my life was saved by a homeless African-American man who couldn't stand seeing me get beat up by like 16 people. This is a very difficult time, but also very important for us to make a stand against imperialism and neo-Nazi and to sound the alarm. It's a funny thing that we're taught in school, and those of you who are in education know this, that nationalism in the modern age is dangerous. Right-wing nationalists are generally correctly portrayed as being dangerous to peace. And yet everything we're told now is that stand with Ukraine, stand with Ukrainian nationalists. This Ukrainian nationalism is a symptom of something that is far more dangerous. And using these neo-Nazi groups as proxies without anybody paying attention to it, except Russia, but nobody's listening to Russia. So we, as Marxists, as socialists, as communists, have to sound the alarm against this very dangerous threat, which ultimately will come back to haunt. As somebody said earlier, the blowback is real. It's a real problem. And just look at what happened in South America when all those Nazis went to South America and helped murder socialists in Argentina and Brazil and all over South America. This is going to be a hard-fought battle for all of us. This is an internationalist struggle, for sure. And we can play a part in that. I hope we pull together and do that. I think what we find ourselves in right now absolutely can be described as a propaganda war. Like you said, they're marching in lockstep. 
with essentially the State Department's views on anything. I think anyone who can look into their phones right now and see that a number of their apps have changed their icons to have blue and gold flags in solidarity with Ukraine. I think this is one of the most heightened propaganda wars that I've personally yes. lived through, and I was born in 1990. You didn't see this kind of quote-unquote solidarity with Syria during the Syrian civil war. You didn't see this kind of stuff even with Yugoslavia, I don't think. Right. Eventually you did, but they didn't ramp it up as successfully in the beginning as this imperialist campaign has. I think what you say is basically true that they've finessed their imperialist propaganda. They've just learned how to do it better. The better is Orwellian. Just imagine the future as a boot stamping on your face forever. That's what we have. And they'll stamp on our face forever if we let them. So some people just like that. I don't know. Maybe some people are so zombified. I've talked to people who seem to be educated people, and yet they're completely, what is that horror movie? The Body Snatchers, that kind of scenario. Don't you have a mind? Are you unquestioningly going along with this nightmare propaganda? It's unbelievable. What do you think that the differences and similarities are between the modern European fascism and modern American fascism? There are big differences, but ultimately they will come together. They will iron out their differences. There are conflicting racial theories here at work. That was the case also in World War II. The Nazi racists and the Italian racists had different arguments, yet despite those contradictions, they were able to ally themselves. The fact that the Nazis tried to cultivate a Bosnian Muslim fascist movement seem to contradict the prevailing Aryan theories. So there's lots of contradictions among the races. But again, imperialism will bring them together, will bring all the races together, despite their contradictory false theories. <laughs> After all, they are all lies anyway. So the greater importance is the imperialist policy. Ultimately, these races are criminals and should not be thought of as anything more than criminals. They're thugs who want to steal other people's property and kill people who stand in their way. That's all they are. And their theoretical differences can be papered over. A lot of people where I live have been putting stuff up about fundraising for Ukrainian refugees. And I've been asking the question, how come there hasn't been this big demand for fundraising for the people of Yemen, the people of Syria, the people of Afghanistan, and actually a couple of the people behind this, the question became, is it because they're Europeans, clearly racist? Mm -hmm. And a couple of people who've been behind this have all of a sudden gone silent after that confrontation. A little bit about the first Ukrainian front. My understanding was this was a major military group that fought with the Soviet army. And in fact, in the last couple of years of the war, about almost half of the casualties in the Soviet army were Ukrainian. From what I know from the great font of all knowledge, Wikipedia, is that they were <laughs> called the first Ukrainian front. And I think it was a fairly significant number that fought with the Soviet. 
it was asked a few questions ago about how this conflict has been much more propagandized and it seems like a lot more people are on board and we don't see much of a pushback from it. And I'm thinking about how we had the whole Russiagate and they were been working on this for a minute oh, yeah. to twist that narrative. We have obviously split between Republicans and Democrats and the whole time the Democrats were blaming Russia for almost losing to Trump and things of that nature. And when they did lose, that that's why. So I was thinking that maybe they've been laying down the foundation for this for a minute. You're absolutely correct. We have to look at the larger picture that, again, it goes back to the imperialist effort to conquer Russia, to conquer China, to conquer the whole world for capitalism, and particularly for American and NATO capitalism, or the multinationals. And so for a long time, I think, at least under Putin, Russia was viewed as an enemy. And under George W. Bush, we pulled out of a lot of the strategic arms agreements. And we also began to advocate the expansion of NATO into Georgia and Ukraine. And really, Putin has been speaking against this for close to 20 years now. And so the whole foreign policy establishment knows, understands very well that it's important for U.S. imperialism to fight Russia, to weaken Russia, to somehow take over Russia, and ultimately to break it up like we broke up Yugoslavia into many states. That would be the ideal solution. The different regions of Russia have distinct characters to them, and so it's possible to conceive of a division of Russia into maybe eight or nine or ten different countries like they did to Yugoslavia. When you think about what happened under Trump, when Trump was actually, in a sense, cozying up to Russia and distancing himself from NATO to some extent, and the whole impeachment process was really an effort to force Trump to arm the Ukrainians more and shift the guy who's the head of the Committee of Foreign Relations in the House even said, we must arm and support Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there and not have to fight Russia over here. So in other words, develop them as a proxy army to fight Russia. You're absolutely right. They laid the foundations a long time ago for this. About Ukrainian propaganda. I've noticed with a lot of European fascist organizations, this is certainly the case in Yugoslavia as well, they get into a deep effort in their propaganda to reconstruct a kind of ancient or medieval past. And I saw <laughs> that with the Ukrainians. And I was wondering, could you talk a bit more about that? I just have an interest because the ancient and medieval words are my field of study. The Slavic tribes in the medieval period didn't necessarily immediately have a particular identity. There were Slavic tribes, there were Finnish tribes, there were perhaps even Khazars who came together under the Rusoti or the Kievan Rus around 862. And so the Russian state was actually born in what is today the Ukraine. Kiev was the capital of the ancient Russian state, the Russian Orthodox Church. It was formally established in the Crimea, but actually dates back to the 850s under Princess Olga. And these people in what is today the Ukraine were Russians. They were Russians all the way to the Carpathians, to all of Galicia. Those were Russians. And Ukraina was simply a geographical 
But that doesn't mean that Ukrainian national identity is not legitimate today. Unfortunately, nationalism is a reality and geography, economy, and history create these nationalities sometimes, for better or for worse, there is a Ukrainian national identity. But no, there was no Ukrainians in the Middle Ages. So they have fabricated an ancient myth of their past. That's true. I believe was asked one or two sessions ago, what were initially the Nazis doing? And we kind of touched on that. And one of the things we all forget and The truth is coming out about these organizations now, but one thing is still hidden in history, and that's the popular front period from 45 to about 47 and 48 in our country, but also in Europe, in Italy, France, and Britain, all the countries after World War II, the winning side was a coalition of three groups. It would have been the anti-fascist front, like in France or Italy. The second was a trade union movement. And then the third was the Communist Party. And Barry spoke about how the late 40s and 50s, the U.S.-British side renaged or went against all the agreed-upon treaties. And that's what they did. They kicked out the communists. And the initial use of the Nazis was to exterminate the trade unions and exterminate this communist movement. And they kicked them out of government in about 1947. This is the time when the parties historically were their biggest, like in this country. And so that's what happened there. The next question was about the missile strike recently that hit Donetsk. That missile was shot at Donetsk, but it was shot down and only parts of it crashed and they hit and they blew up. And that's how some civilians died. The third question about Kharkiv and the cities. Studying this conflict, I'm glad I've seen from everyone speaking here, we've come to the correct conclusions. And I heard Syria was mentioned and I was very happy to see that it was brought up this thing about Kievan Rus, because we've heard that propaganda being used that they're the real Russia. They're the anti-Russia. The way that we should study this military operation would be like Syria. And what I've read about that conflict, this is coming from the leadership there, is the Syrian model is the following. They defeat the enemy on the plains and they hold them up in the cities. But the difference between Syria and Ukraine was in Syria, the jihad forces, U.S.-backed mercenaries, just like in Syria, they would let the civilians out. In Ukraine, these neo-Nazi forces, they hold them captive in the cities. We shouldn't think it's like a blitzkrieg model or American satisfaction model where there's going to be instant success immediately. And I think that was factored in by the Russian side. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. This is not the first time I heard who I consider not only a comrade, but a friend. And he really knows his business. He spoke at meetings of the U.S. friends of Soviet people when we used to get together in Manhattan, in New York. But I want to mention something about his personal life, which always excited me. Barry's mom was a person in her own right. She was involved with, I think it was called the American Slob Committee. Every Uh, communist front group you could imagine, yes. Yes, there was another one of our, what Lenin called the transmission belt and what the bourgeoisie calls the communist front organization. So, And I met Barry's mom, too. Very, very, really intriguing woman. I wanted to say that what scares me is how so many communists who call themselves communists have such a bad analysis of what's going on now. And I just want to tell everybody, again, Sam Webb, who was for years 
in the leadership role of the American Communist Party, CPUSA. He has a blog. I urge people to go to his personal blog. When he lost the general secretary leadership in the CP, he picked up his marbles and he left the party. And he officially told the world he joined the Democratic Party, officially. Mm. And I thought it was interesting because he was basically that all the years that he was the head of the CP. He was actually a Democrat. His recent statement goes like this. Typical communist talk when I was in the party. The main danger, that's the term he used, but what he said was shocking. The main danger is not NATO. Can you imagine the communists saying that? The main danger is not NATO. The main danger is Putin. (laughs) That's straight out of his mouth. And I say now he's full circle of where he has been since the time he took over leadership. Basically a social democrat, but much worse than that, a spokesman for the bourgeois party, the Democratic Party. So I just wanted to mention that to everybody, that the groups on the left who are parroting the State Department and the enemy is Putin. He's the main enemy. Of course, he's an enemy to communists. But is he the main enemy in what's going on in the Ukraine? So therefore, it's not fascism. It's not even NATO. That's a group in the left that is parroted by DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, Jacobin Magazine, all these people. As communists, we have to understand that at different points in history, different people played a progressive role. For example, The U.S. played a progressive role in 1941 when the war started. They played a progressive role by fighting against fascism. The same U.S. that played a reactionary role six years later in 1947. It actually became everything that Hitler tried to do in the world. The United States took up the banner of doing. Dialectically, it's so important to understand that different people play different roles. I mentioned many times Khrushchev. I mentioned Tito also. I'm not one of these anti-Titoites. During the war against fascism, Tito led the rebellion, the Nazis who were occupying Yugoslavia. And it's the same Tito then who 1948 broke with Stalin. The same Khrushchev that denounced Stalin at the 20-party Congress, then sent the troops into Hungary to put down a fascist rebellion. That's what it was led by the Horthy forces in Hungary. This idea that everybody is good or bad is not always on the surface that way. It depends on, as Lenin said, who is winning out. If the working class is winning out, then it's a positive thing. If the capitalists are winning out, it's a negative thing. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.